Welcome to the Tales from Wales podcast. This week's guest is author and travel writer Horatio Clare. We hope that lockdown is treating you well and thank you very much for listening. So uh, please like, share and subscribe. But for now, please listen to our chat with a lovely man called Horatio Clare on the Tales from Wales podcast. And welcome to the Tales from Wales podcast. Hello to anyone watching at home. If you want to get involved with the show, feel free to uh, comment and get in touch with myself, Stefan, or our guests. Uh, this week, Stefan and I are joined by Horatio Clare. Horatio, how are we? I'm very well, thank you, Drew. Um, yeah, it's a lovely day in exile in the north of England. And uh, yeah, day, whatever it is, 204 of lockdown. Um, <laughs> hugely relieved to be at least, you know, virtually with you in Wales. Yeah, I think it's I think it's March the ninety third now or something like that. Isn't it? I think that's sort of the, the current date. But the, have we been holding up? How have we been holding up in this period? Has it really sort of changed how you go about your daily routine anyway, or is it pretty much uh, the same for yourself? It's been good for for the writing. Um, no, no no distractions, um, and we live on the edge of a, a little town called Hebden Bridge in the Pennines, which is beautiful. So we're very blessed with woods and streams, and I've got a little boy, uh, so I spend a lot of time in woods and streams. Um, my teaching at Manchester went online, um, which was actually good in that I hate commuting to Manchester. Uh, I kind of hate Manchester. <laughs> and um, my students, instead of sitting around in bars agonizing about writing, actually did brilliant work. So that was fine. Um, but it's become really, uh, I do feel a bit itchy now. You know, when they announced yesterday that, or whenever it was, that Wales is going to reopen on the 6th of July, I was just so relieved because I, I really miss it and I miss my mum. Uh, so I'll be back there. I'll be crossing the border at midnight. Is the idea? <laughs> it sounds very, uh, very, very covert. That as, across, as if you're going to be sort of all sort of camouflaged up and sneaking over the border illicitly. Well, um, people have so, been, you know, and I do love yeah. the border. <laughs> well, you sort of you said mum is still in Wales. Um, that, that, is that sort of? Can you explain your sort of links to Wales and your attachments to Wales? Yeah, so before I was born, my parents uh, had this idea that they would get, a, you know, they would be posh and they would buy a country house. Um, but then, mistakenly, in a way, they bought a seventy-three-acre sheep farm up a hill in the Black Mountains. And my mum fell in love with sheep farming and kind of out of love with my dad. So by the time I was sort of, <laughs> um, they'd more or less split. You know, they were, it was they were kind of hanging together, but. They ended up splitting. Dad went back to London. He was a journalist. And we, my brother and I, grew up with my mum on this farm um, near Cumdi, uh, near Crick Howell. And mm -hmm. I went to school first at Cumdi School and then at Clangattic. Uh, and so it was very odd because I spoke as I do now. And um, I didn't print it on my parents. So I was always teased for being posh. Or <laughs> I remember them say, you are posh. And I went home and said to my mum, they're calling me posh, mum. And my mum, who's a delightful snob, said, well, you are, darling. And it was the dream of my childhood. Um, but, you know, it took me a while. In fact, it was Cardiff Arms Park. We went to watch under-21s, and I really wanted the Welsh to win. So that was the first hint. And then it took me ages to figure out where I was from. And then I realized I was from a valley, which happens to be in Wales. Therefore, I'm Welsh. Um, and I went to school in England briefly and then back in Wales uh, and then backwards and forwards ever since, really. So this is my home. 
Um, what was quite nice then as well is that you mentioned the Arms Park and the 21s. You didn't reference any sport at all, but everyone knows exactly what sport you're talking about because we didn't yeah. and it, it couldn't possibly be anything else. No. Um, you said that dad's a journalist. Like, would would you just like if you sort of pop your name in Google, like I often do without guests, you, you come up as like writer, author, journalist. How, how do you sort of see yourself with, with how, how do you I classify yourself? Yeah, I mean, I um, I. It's if, you know you, you can't. We're very. My agent said to me when I was going to leave my job at the BBC, she said there are about twelve writers in Britain who make a living out of writing books. You're probably not one of them. <laughs> um, so ever since then, I've taught and um, done newspaper journalism and magazine journalism and, and broadcasting. Um, so it's it's a mix. Yeah, I, I, I'm the three of them, and I, I you know I love journalism. It's a it's a trade I'm 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 honoured to be in, and as um, as a writer, it's mostly non-fiction. You know, I've written children's books, but really I tend not to make it up. So my books are somewhere between kind of what they used to call life writing and travel writing and, and long-form journalism, really. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a lovely mixture of, of arts, and I, I try and teach it um, because although it's hard to teach people to write successful books, you can teach anyone the rudiments of writing well, and certainly journalism is a craft you can teach. Uh, so that's what I do at Manchester. Um, would you say it's like a, a case of taking a passion into a into a career path for you? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, with I knew I wasn't going to be a sheep farmer. That was my one decision, <laughs> which I'm kind of reneging on now. But you know, I didn't really have any other models for employment except I wanted to be a writer. I remember reading Alistair MacLean when I was very young and thinking, this guy spends half his time writing and the other half the time traveling. I want to do that. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I was about ten when I kind of committed to writing. <laughs> Perhaps an avoidance tactic of the sheep instead of maybe <laughs> a way of getting out to sheep farming. Yeah. But, um, we, we met very briefly doing a, a little bit of Radio Wales, I think, about maybe 18 months ago or something like that. And I think at the time yeah. you were just doing a bit of promo for your book, a Light, The Light in the Dark. Um, uh, and prior to that, I, I was never aware of, of a seasonal affective disorder or what that is. Um, do, do you think I sort of... Is, how, how does that sort of affect you living in like rural Wales? Is it is it more of a thing outside of cities and, and towns? Well, interesting actually. They, so it, it, I never really suffered that badly in Wales, mostly because of the sheep. You know, if you're going out every day <laughs> farming, it's fine. You're, you're too busy, and then you're too relieved and tired when you get back in, and you just want to watch a club rugby on S4C, and you're you know you're made. You can get through entire winters like that. But then in the north of England, I found it very difficult because I'm lazy and I didn't do what northern you know people do, which is put on lycra or you know waterproofs and get out and face it i was hunched up in an attic reading and writing books and it just became ridiculous i would start to dread it and then it would come and then kind of these endless black rains and commuting and it just it piles up and then i realized when i started researching the book it is actually a it's the easiest form of depression to tackle because it basically yeah. is a lack of light and a lack of vitamin d and a lack of exercise and a lack of oily fish and you can put all that stuff right uh, and un, you know, unusually in the mental health sphere, you can put it right without taking bloody awful pills. So um, that was that's what it became about was uh, an attempt to to look at winter, you know, as a thing of beauty, uh, and to look at my own area up here where I feel very foreign, uh, you know, um, as as a travel writer would to try and see it fresh. Um, yeah. And the light of the dark was basically a winter journal, which came out of that. Do you think there's been any sort of parallels with seasonal affective disorder with like this lockdown period now? Because like recently, I I feel like I've almost reached a point of lockdown fatigue, and I I want I'm sort of craving normality a little bit. Do you think it runs a few parallels there? 
yeah, I think we would have been in terrible trouble as a nation if this had happened over the winter. I, I can't imagine how awful that would have been. Um, but, there's, you know, it does lift everyone's spirits just a sunny day. It's bound to. I'm sure it goes right back to our basic, you know, biology and hunter-gatherer roots. Uh, on a fine day, you can go out and get yeah. get eat, whereas it, when it's miserable, everything hides, including us. Uh, and I think any strategy that gets you through is viable. You know, if, if you want to stay in bed, then do, but it doesn't make it better. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 the conversation about mental health has been fascinating. Suddenly people who um, would never have talked about it before, uh, it's part of the normal conversation, you know, our mental health, we have rights and needs in the area of that. Yeah. Um, in fact, when I saw you, when we met, I was promoting that book and a book about Bach at the same time. And I was on a rising manic high, which would just get worse and worse until I was banged up in the following January uh, in a mental hospital in Wakefield. Uh, so that was a kind of change, you know, a complete change of life. Um, and I was aware as, as it was happening that I was, you know, it, it was incredibly rich. I was incredibly lucky in a way as a writer because not, although quite a lot of writers do see the insides of mental homes, not, not all of us yeah. write about them. So that's what I've been doing recently. I've just finished a book about that. Um, do, you, do you find like with the sort of ups and downs and the different periods of mental health, it, it feeds into your writing a little bit and, and helps you manage it maybe? It does a bit, yeah. I mean, that's the horrible danger of, there's a brilliant book by Jay Griffiths um, uh, called Tristomania, which is about why the high is so uh, compulsive and addictive and amazing, why you don't want to get rid of it. Uh, and with me, it sparks very simply, I'm uh, affected by cannabis. If I smoke dope, then, uh, you yeah. know, I don't go out until I finished it, then I go out for more, and then I start staying up all night, and then uh, it all goes to pot really quickly. Um, so that was part of it for me. Um, but yeah, it, I, I think it's, we're on a, a moment of extraordinary change in the way mental health is regarded. Um, yeah. out recently about how we need nature, how we need exercise, how we need each other, how we need conversation, how we don't need pills. A lot of the time, the treatment for mental health is scandalous. Um, people get put on stuff that makes them worse in the long term, and all the stats show that. Um, yeah fascinating moment of, of transformation in fact in our relationship to our minds Steph yeah um, kudos to you on the mental health um, I've, I've well I've suffered from depression I've been off antidepressants now since September last year and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me um, I'm, I'm taking CBD uh, capsules I, I think they're working really well so uh I think, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think, uh, you, you, you know, you're doing a great thing there. I think we're all doing a great thing. And I think that the whole country is going to have a mental health problem uh, yeah. by the end of this. And I think we'll all need to come, go into it at the same time and come out of it at the same time, I think. That's right. And, uh, I would say, going on to my question, uh, I, I find it very interesting that, uh, you know, you were born in London and you came and were raised in Wales. I think, you know, that's the best way to be raised, I believe, in my opinion. <laughs> But uh, yes, do agree. you think that your uh, do you think that your yeah it's it's, a bit, it's the best place? I mean, you know, you were saying just now, like you know, your 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 that's a classic Welsh love story that you know your mum goes moves to a, a a hill farm and falls in love with a sheep and doesn't need a man anymore. That's <laughs> ideal. <laughs> um, but but uh, I, you know that that's going to stay with me. But I, I would say my my question would be, uh, you know. If, if you hadn't moved to Wales, do you think that your point of view or vision when it comes to your writing would be similar or, you know, it, it would be different, do you think? It would be, I, I don't know if I'd even have made it in 
um, to to that uh, because my first book was a story of growing up on that mountain and it was uh, saturated as my childhood was in in the beauty and also of course the savagery of, of the natural world and and books because we didn't lit well we didn't have TV because there was a mountain in the way of the TV signal so um, yeah it made me absolutely it did and that childhood does um, I think you can probably make anybody a writer if you you know if, if you give them enough book when they're when they're kids and, and they take to it. Um, and it was very imaginative childhood. Uh, so, you know, we we were unable to watch Airwolf or the A-Team except when we were <laughs> eight houses after school. And then we would just ignore them and stare at their TVs. Um, but yeah, no, d definitely. Uh, Wales taught me what it is to look at nature and what it is to, to feel uh, what it can give you uh, and to see something of its stories and its rhythms. Um, and that, that and Radio 4, probably, the, you know, the constant... Uh, the voices um, and my mother was a great talker uh, and I just absorbed that so when it came to writing a first book I was just took it down like dictation and if you go to like Dylan Thomas's boathouse in Larne uh, there's a you can see he's just sitting there taking it straight from life um, and then the same of course with Undermilk Wood you know uh, so yes it definitely makes writers it, it's not an accident that the Celtic fringe is like Ireland and Wales produce such extraordinary yeah. literature. And, and in Wales, we've been particularly blessed um, with support from the Welsh Government uh, and what was Academy and then became Literature Wales. Uh, we've had a golden generation of writing, and that's partly produced willfully by the culture itself, which yeah. values it. Uh, uh, and we've just been extraordinarily lucky in that, in that regard. Uh, I was adopted by the Welsh literary establishment when my first book came out and told I was a Welsh writer. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, that's, uh, you know, that's been the making of me. Perhaps that's a relationship that worked both ways, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps they, they wanted you on board as much as, as, much as you wanted to be well, on board. <laughs> you, you said about like exposure, um, and I think there's sort of a, a balancing act between sort of perhaps ability as a writer and like experiences you you, you have and, and practice and, and expose the things that like you said about your mom being a talker and and the yes. ability to be in these places if anyone is that wants to be a writer or that sort of is an ambition of theirs do you think it's, it's about repetition and practice as much as ability um i think it's 90 percent will uh, getting into yeah. it, you know publishing is it's something you want to do uh, and i've i've seen it in courses i've taught adult courses where you know, you get but to the end of the week and you've got 90% of them have got a, a really good idea. They've got a really good proposal. All they've got to do now is go away and write it. And you've talked about how that might be done. And then within the next couple of weeks, you get emails saying, actually, you know what? I think I might do it differently. or I don't really like it anymore. or don't believe in it. And, and they just count themselves out of the game. So, yeah, I think talent uh, plays a role, but it really it, it's hugely about will. It's about wanting something badly enough. And you're right about experiences. I'm not, you know, uh, the kind of writer like Zadie Smith who can just sit down and mm. make it up um, to the extent that any of us do. I need to uh, live it um, first on the whole. So that, then I write that up. It's well, I, I find that draws a parallel, like comedy writing and stand-up writing, which is sort of, you know, all me and Stefan uh, attempt to do at least. But mm. I find there's nothing worse than a blank page. You know, you, a blank page is the most daunting thing that you can sort of be faced with as when you're trying to be creative. And I think real life feeds into, there's nothing more amusing, nothing more interesting than real life, really. Um, and yes. I find that that really feeds into my writing. And I, I base things on, you know, stuff that happens to me and that sort of thing. But like going back to when I sort of first uh, met, met you on uh, Radio Wales, Dan Thomas was a, a comedian, was on the show. And when you came on, he, he became really excited when you, when you sort of came in and, was, and said hello and, and, and entered the studio. 
And I said, what's, what's the matter? He said, oh, he's an author. He's, he read this, this, this fantastic book about a ship. <laughs> and I was like, all right, okay. He recommended um, Down to the Sea and Ships to me. And I, I've been reading that. And I found it fascinating, like, sort of, first of all, like, why you would decide to stow away on a ship for months <laughs> and write about it. And, and where that idea would be. It's, it's, yeah. it's such a sort of ballsy move as well, because, like, where did the idea come from, first of all? I've always loved ships. Uh, went to school at Atlantic College for a while on the Bristol Channel and used to watch them. Uh, read a lot of maritime writing. Uh, was really into Conrad and, and sailing and all those things. Lifeboats for a little while when I was very young. Um, but it's so it's two things. It's just a, a cracking idea. Container shipping. Nobody's writing about it. And then it's getting the permission to do it. Uh, and after that, it's, it was a massive open goal. You know, you couldn't go wrong. Here's this extraordinary world packed with stories and people who are stuck on a ship with nothing to do, you know, apart from their incredibly hard work, but to talk about it except tell you them. Um, so it, it, was an, it was easy once I'd done, you know, that had the idea. And that was just, I read Moby Dick and I was in Verona, we were living there and uh, I had this idea, you know, he says, when my humours get the upper half of me and it's this November, dank November in my soul, and I have difficulty not joining every funeral cortege that passes and knocking strangers' hats off in the street. I count it high time to go to sea. And I was in exactly that mood. And I thought, stop it. Oh, that's it. And so I emailed Maersk and off we went. Um, and it's been, it was the most amazing experience. Um, and that's part of it. You know, this kind of writing that I do, the lovely thing is if, you, if you're lucky enough to get the access, then you can spend your time living out, finding out stories firsthand. And then all you've got to do is take them down. Um, and my notes for that are continual longhand um, with no crossings out because I'm just writing it down as it's happening. Um, so that's it, really. Uh, Non-fiction writing, when you break it down to that level, is pretty straightforward. Yeah. yeah, it was it was marvelous, <laughs> the most, and and really moving and you know infuriating uh, the way that capitalism works, the way that supply chains work. Yeah. Way we treat laborers, you know, what we now call essential workers or recognize as such, uh, scandal after scandal. Um, and I am a political writer, and that yeah. um, it, gave, it gave me a lot of material. Well, like my, my only experience of a, a shipping boat like that is is your book and the film Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks, you know, is a, a very limited. And it was a, I thought it was a really interesting line in the book where you said that it's. It's something that people are. It's a part of the world that people are completely unaware of, um, but yet it keeps the world, the world we know, moving. And I found that a fascinating sort of um, explanation or metaphor for it. Really, um, it did you feel a bit? Um, did, did, did the ship welcome you on board, though? And did you feel part of the crew, or did you feel a little bit like intrusive no. in some ways? Yeah, no, they they they're very sweet. <laughs> But they look at you like you're an alien. In fact, my captain on the first trip used to introduce me, journalist, like I was an alien that he'd just been asked to transport. And they're like, "What are you? Who are you? What do you want?" Um, and I speak this kind of English, and they speak seafaring English because English is language of the seas. But Filipino can talk to an Indian, can talk to a Romanian in yeah. their version of it. But me, they often couldn't understand what on earth I was talking about either. Um, so when we got through all that, I started writing blog posts and putting them up in the lift because uh, everyone used the lift. And then they were like, ah, so you want to tell our stories? Okay. Yeah. And then we were off, um, except for one kid who kept hiding from me because he'd had his computer um, seized by customs uh, at Felix Stowe. 
because it had some terrible porn on it. And so for two yeah, it was great, uh, of course. And they were very forthcoming. Um, and Maersk were very good. They've changed. I mean, they've tightened up because it's an unregulated, unobserved environment. So they've got nothing really to gain by publicizing it, although they're the industry leader. Uh, and their press office has become more cautious. Yeah. But I think we're pleased with the book because it put them in, the, in, I think, in the right light, which is, you know, they're doing a good job in, in, a, in an appalling industry in many ways. So the be best of a bad bunch, perhaps, is it? Well, uh, yes, I think that's probably true. I think that's probably yeah. true. It all but, depends uh, on it. It's interesting as well, like you said, the captain introduced you as just journalists, you know, like almost as if I had some sort of slur uh, being a journalist. <laughs> yeah. Um, was it sort of obviously high points and low points, but is there anything you found difficult being on the ship for that period of time, knowing you also had a job to try and do? Uh, it was odd not having not not being exposed to the same regime of work that they were. It made me work yeah. very hard. You are you feel spectacularly useless. You know they, they work uh, six hours on, six hours off, round the clock for can be thirteen months at a stretch, uh, and it's absolutely grueling. One of them said very proudly to me, "This is a man's job," and he wasn't saying that in the in slighting women. He was just saying that that is what it is for us. Mm. And very very few women at sea that companies have made efforts, and there used to be more. Um, to take women to see or to, you know, to, to put them in position. And you do get very, uh, there are famous and adept um, captains and senior officers, but it's overwhelmingly male and it's overwhelmingly about taking loneliness on um, and accepting that your family won't see you and you'll miss all the birthdays and you'll miss everything, uh, but you'll send the money home. Um, yeah. So it's, it's heroic in, in that in that regard. Um and they were fascinating in that they, were, they threw a very interesting light on our gender. They, you know, they, they weren't macho. There was nobody to show off to. Uh, they were very strong with themselves. They were very sympathetic. Uh, they were gently, um, set, very sensitive to each other's moods and needs. Um, it, was, um, it was wonderfully heartening in, in that way. I mean, I'm fascinated by men in one of my subjects, perhaps because my parents split, you know, so I didn't see enough of my dad. Um, and uh, it's an amazing place to see them because the sea reveals character very quickly you know if you can't handle it or uh if, if you've got troubles of your own then they'll be revealed very quickly and then it's a question of whether your crew your, your workmates can help you or whether it all goes to hell um and yeah. the captains uh, and the senior officers in fact right down to the very junior rates i just found this remarkable selfless um industrious body of people staff I mean, the question I've got is: I, I heard uh, that there was karaoke on one on one of the ships. I mean, what must it be like to watch, you know, a crew of alpha males sing like you know love songs at each other with no women there? You know, <laughs> when they did, they 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 do away with the kind of alpha thing because you are your role. So the captain is the alpha, and that's how it, yes. how it breaks down, you know, and, and the chief engineer, and so then n nobody gets anywhere with throwing weight around. Uh, there was one scene in Captain Phillips where the crew are objecting to the captain's plans, and I couldn't see that quite. My captain was, uh, I mean, they're absolutely ruthless about their men's safety, about their crew's safety. It's all about that. Um, the good ones, anyway. Uh, and then the karaoke, <laughs> um, 
So Filipino seafarers, who about at least a third of the maritime workforce, have a union negotiated right to a karaoke machine if there's more than a certain number of them on a ship. And <laughs> real part of the union don't have a great deal of power, but they've got that sus. Uh, but it's serious business. And they have, in my view, the worst taste on earth. So it's all kind of lover's elevator rock. Uh, and they used to stand <laughs> it. Uh, and, and they would leave me about my hopeless taste. Um, and then you don't get that many chances to do it, but we were anchored off Suez and they, they started doing it. And it was deadly serious. And the whole ship was deserted except for the lounge where they were up to it. And there were just all these pairs of shoes outside the door uh, and they were getting down to it. And um, it was really touching um, because, you know, they were singing about lovers far away. Um, it was beautiful. Have you got a, a karaoke song of choice yeah. yourself? No, I don't do karaoke. Okay, so that's the other thing about growing up in Wales as me. Is that my, my teacher would come along the line of us singing and she'd listen to me and she'd actually wince. And then she'd go on to the next one. So I was always made to be Herod in the school play. <laughs> Never really allowed to sing. The wonderful thing. Steph, are you going to ask about the, the spooky scene? Oh yeah, yeah. This this is the question I want to ask you. I, I love all the things that are like supernatural, that kind of stuff. And I mean, um, you do hear those like, stories of how you know spooky the sea can be, like mainly at night. I mean, people they hear voices and stuff. And then famously, there's a photograph of the SS Waterdown where uh, you know, people you can see ghostly faces in the sea and stuff. Uh, yeah. Did you did you notice or see anything like that while you were out there? They're intensely eerie environments. So when you approach a ship, she's massive, just incomprehensibly big, and uh, they roar all the time because the generators are running, the engines are running, and they smell of diesel, hot metal, and you know institutional cooking, and uh, not unlike a, um, a prison in, in that kind of smell, and then of, of men. And you get on board, and you can feel the atmosphere the minute you board. If it's an unhappy ship, uh, you know it um, because they it's partly the, their steel structures, but also there's something about um, the way the sea seems to magnify all the eerie and the inexplicable. Um, and then you ask them about their stories and they've all got them. Uh, and they're very superstitious indeed. Even the most rational sailor won't whistle. Um, on some ships, they just don't whistle because it brings storms. Okay. No steel feet on the deck, no feet on the steel deck. You have to wear <laughs> shoes, never kill a bird. Um, don't sit on a capstan or a sailor drowns. Um, there are loads of them. And they yeah. told me extraordinary stories about stuff that they'd seen and things that they'd heard. Uh, and if anyone dies on a ship, then they, they, they have to have a sea priest aboard to perform a service of blessing before they'll happily sail on it again. Um, and some of them were truly frightening. When I mean, there was one, this wonderful first mate, John, second mate, he was a Geordie. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he, uh, he he was a kind of shambling sea dog. He's a wonderful guy uh, and full of stories, most of them horrendous. Um, and he would tell them with enormous relish, with his eyes fixed on you, to make sure you were really getting it. Uh, and there's one moored <laughs> at Hun Stanton off the coast of Scotland. It sounds like the bleakest place, you know, outside Siberia. And he decides to get his mum on board, and she's come all the way up to join him. And so they get onto this ship. And uh, she, she, she won't go on board. And he has to really fight to get her on board. And finally she gets on and then she goes to his cabin and she won't leave his cabin. And the captain says, you know, would you like a tour? And she says, no. Uh, and would you like to stay overnight? She says, no. 
And uh, finally, John takes her off the ship and he says, what was that about, Ma? And she says, something terrible happened on that ship. And he says, I knew that people had been stabbed to death on it, but she yeah. can't have It wasn't on the internet. It wasn't anywhere. And she, he said, how do you know, Mum?" And she said, I could see them. Um, hmm. That point really up me. Whoa. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, I, I, wow. our most nights were like, when we were out in the North Atlantic, really quite bad weather. And it was kind of dashing and wild. And uh, you just got this feeling of, of madness beyond the bridge, really and the dark of the sea, and you're going over mass graveyards, of course, with the North Atlantic convoys, so there's wreck after wreck below you, and there are records of the sea being covered in lights like fireflies from all the life jackets of torpedoed sailors, uh, and um, it was ferocious, and you could sense it all. You, it was, it was yeah. all there. They say the sea has no memory, but then if you read the stories, it becomes not just kind of palpable memory, but sensible memory in, in that it's, it appears to be right there. Did you experience any sort of uh, strange or sort of unusual things during your period? Because obviously you're on the ship for multiple months and, and perhaps there is a perhaps an element of your mind or your brain playing some tricks on you here and there in that sense. But is there anything sort of eerie or spooky happened to you specifically? Uh, walking around the ship itself, uh, particularly at night, was very spooky because uh, all the containers make noises and the ship yeah. groans and roars and uh, things, you know, batter and, and kind of crash about. So it's like you've got ghosts aboard anyway. Yeah. And then there are really odd smells. Um, <laughs> no, I used to get, you get trickled, in the, and that turned out yeah. to be cow heads in brine. You know, we, we were transporting all these severed cow heads, uh, and they stank. <laughs> so uh, that was odd. But no, um, and, and you know, one of them, the oldest one I was on, she had her own internal soundtrack, which was like a whistling, sort of moaning sound in the stairwells, and she had a kind of internal gale effect all the time, uh, and you yeah. could feel the history of her. Uh, in fact, she um, she burned and and ended up being scrapped. Um, but no, I didn't. I didn't see anything. Unfortunately, I certainly sensed it. Like uh, to be honest, like the, the way you just sort of quite casually said you were transporting severed cow head shows that you know there's it's quite a weird and wonderful range of, of cargo on a ship like that. Yeah. Um, you would you say cow heads is up there with the, the weirdest and, and, and the Yeah, I would say it took me months to get them to release the manifest because they don't tell the seafarers what they're carrying except for the explosive right. stuff. stuff that needs to be yeah. cold. Um, uh, they're worried that they'll about theft and stuff and they just don't see the need. So it took me ages to get the manifests. And then it turned out, you know, the, the things that you would imagine, like tons of uh, explosives and fireworks and shoe polish and forks and computers yeah. and spacecraft and all that kind of thing. And then these severed cow heads, which were going from... <laughs> Al Jazeera's, I think, uh, to Qatar or somewhere, or Malaysia, and they absolutely reeked. As it got hotter and hotter, they just stank. Um, and, and there's some sort of delicacy. But they made this rather ghastly soup, which sloshed all over the decks. Uh, and you walk. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, 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 it's really weird. And then you realize you're, you're carrying milk from Argentina, which is destined for Nova Scotia. And this isn't because yeah. they haven't got, you know, cows in Canada. It's just because the market's insane. And then you realize that there's no controlling mind, that capitalism, you know, because of the, the, the freight rates being so low, it made sense to raise your chickens in Denmark, take them to China to be filleted, and then bring them back to Denmark to sell them. Uh, and it, it's just bizarre. Uh, and, of course, it's environmentally incredibly costly. It's the seventh most yeah. polluting country in the world is shipping. Um, but, you know, the, the companies are trying. They, they don't want to do that any more than anybody else does. But as they say, you know, we enable globalization because, you know, we, we are it. We, we're, 
we're answering a demand. Uh, it may be that this business will change the way we think about that somewhat, but I, I don't see it changing hugely. Bigger and more fuel efficient ships is where it's going at the moment. Yeah, but if anyone you know is interested in what you see and I don't the sea and ships, I'd recommend that to anyone. I'm on chapter six at the moment, so um, don't give away the ending. No spoilers, please. Um, no. you've, you've written a book about a sort of retelling of Welsh Welsh legends as well. Is it myths and legends? Something that is quite appealing. To you? Yeah, yeah, I did. Because you grow up on them, don't you? you like Gaelic yeah. and stuff, you know. Um, yeah. In fact, I was in uh, Corwen and I got talking to somebody. Out. I was having a cigarette outside a restaurant and he told me a version of Gellert in which the dog survives. <laughs> <laughs> a nicer version. <laughs> really? Yeah. Huh. But, um, yeah. So, yes, I, of course, you know, you definitely grow up with them and, and rewriting them was, was easy and fun, really. It was wonderful. It was a kind of uh, rewriting and put a contemporary spin on it kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. In fact, I'm sort of doing one at the moment on Welsh castles. And like, have you heard of Nest, who they called the no. Helen of Troy, the Welsh Helen of Troy? No, Princess. no. She was extraordinary. She ended up, so uh, at early reign of William the Conqueror and then his son, William, uh, becomes her lover. She's kidnapped from, uh, I think, Carew Castle. And uh, she's famously beautiful. Uh, and then he sends her back to marry one of his kind of Norman French lords, uh, and then a, a Welsh guerrilla prince effectively falls in love with her and kidnaps her, uh, and then he's caught, and she saves her husband from the guerrilla prince by sending him down the Garda robe. Uh, so she posts him down the loo uh, in the castle, um, and then he, the guy's caught by the wrong husband's archers and shot to death, and then she marries again, um, so she has these extraordinary, astonishing life. Um, and through it, it all seems to maintain a sense of autonomy and direction, which is almost incomprehensible now um, for a woman in that position. But yeah, Worldsmith is extraordinarily rich, obviously, and our castles are amazing, kind of war machines of oppression. So, uh, and full of ghosts, obviously. Yeah. And at the end of that myth, does the dog die in the end, or is that a happy ending? <laughs> the dog generally dies. Well, there, one, <laughs> there was Satan, and it was, he was an ape uh, of Barbary called Satan, and he was uh, in hock to a terrible master, uh, I think, I believe, at Pembroke and Carew again. Uh, and so in my version of the myth, he survives and makes it back to Morocco. But um, he was set on uh, somebody who came protesting that the ghastly lord had raped his daughter, and so he sets the ape on him, and then the ape kills the, the bastard as well. I mean, he kills the king as well. Uh, and his ghost is said to haunt the castle now. Like a, um, a, a retelling of uh, Harambe, like an old Harambe yeah, sort of story. Um, Steph? I mean, yeah, I was going to say about that uh, that ghost of the of the ape in, in Keiru Castle. Do you think, like... You know, I, I remember being in Cardigan in West Wales when I was like four years old, and we were down at the uh, the, the the farmers market, not where you buy apples, is where you buy animals. And there yeah. used to be this woman that used to have a, a pet monkey, and I had uh, it wore a nappy and had a cone of chips all the time. <laughs> Loved it. Obviously, then, you know, <laughs> too dangerous to keep a monkey these days and feeding chips. <laughs> That's a future yeah. myth. I think Jamie Oliver would have a few things to say about that, wouldn't he? Not, uh, not feeding that monkey. Yeah, abusing the monkey yeah. diet. Ruin, ruin school meals again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the nappy for? The chips. 
you know, like in regard to you know, right, uh, um, earlier show is right there is almost one of those sort of uh, dream jobs in many ways. Like you see people within television shows that are right there, and it's always an aspirational type thing that people always want to sort of pass to. Um, we've got any advice if anyone wants to be a writer, or if there's anyone watching or listening who's interested in that sort of field, how, how best you'd approach sort of getting into it? Yes. Um, I think that it's no mystery for a start. You know, when I taught it at John Moore's in Liverpool, where a lot of the students had been taken in with quite low grades uh, and quite low expectations. And then you're talking to them about becoming a writer. And I remember the feeling of standing at the bottom of a glass cliff, you know, with me at the bottom and kind of Ian McGeehan and Zadie Smith at the top of it. Uh, and that's just not the case. Uh, it's like anything else. Um, if you want to do it, then, then you need to do the basics, which is obviously a lot of reading. But also uh, courses are available uh, and they're great on the whole. Um, I, I think you'd find out quite quickly whether it's for you. My boss at uh, Manchester, a wonderful poet called John McAuliffe, when people want to transfer from undergrad to do the masters with us, he yeah. says maybe take a year out and see if you've got the discipline to sit down and do what uh, Stefan was talking about earlier, face the blank page. Yeah. Um, that's really what you want to do. And the thing is, um, I, I find that sometimes it feels like the best job in the world, of course, but also, um, well, it, unless you're able to just make it up, which very few of us are, it feeds off other things. So, you know, my brother was a dustman briefly, uh, and he's, 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 he's become a filmmaker, among other things. Uh, and I was a bartender and I used to deliver pizza. And without doing those things, you, you've got nothing to write about. So you want to see everything you do as potentially part of your career. It takes a long time. It can't be rushed. A lot of people want to have been, want to have written, you know, want to be, a, I did. I wanted to have a book out before I'd yeah. begin this kind of thing. So there's that. Um, but you also might think about, you know, is this satisfying? Is this going to be what feels like a meaningful life? And if the answer is, uh, I've got no choice, that's what I have to do, then then you are a writer. Um, it's just a question of, of plugging away until you get into print. Yeah, and like you said, it's that sort of it's a repetition experience and perhaps, you know, it's the doing of it as opposed to the, the wanting to do it, which I think You've is... You've got to love to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Steph, do you want to sort of ask what, what's next and wrap up? Yeah, I got, I got one literary question, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll get on to the one next one next thing. It's a, it's a very early term. I find it hard to sort of um, to, to get on board with, but but it's an important thing as well. It's a, a killing your babies. That's a, mm. that's a that's a mad term, isn't it, for for people who write? Yeah, I find it hard to get rid of stuff. Yeah, so the, that's it pretty much what like it is, isn't it? on the page. I think it's Terence Black, Kill Your Darlings is the other version of it. And it's, it's so good. It's an absolute yeah. zinger. It's a winner. You can't miss. And with you guys writing comedy, you probably know when you get it down that that is a hit, that that is a great line. It is a great joke. Uh, for prose writers, long form, it's slightly different. Um, it comes from journalism. And the idea was that if you've got spectacularly uh, ornate and clever and funny and witty uh, and telling phrase, then maybe that's actually rubbish and you should take it out and it's self-indulgent nonsense. I had a sub-editor at my first newspaper on the Mid-Devon Gazette and he used to lean back on his chair and the whole office would kind of look and he'd go, Horatio, he'd been to Eton. And you go, yes. And you go, what is this self-indulgent twaddle? 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's, that's my best like, um, So yeah, there's a degree of that. And, and editors, thing is, do you guys get somebody to look over your stuff or you just try it out on an audience, presumably, and find out the hard way? Yeah, live, live audience is the yeah. is the way to do it. But then it, it comes with the pressure of when you said about the killing your darlings and the and the yeah. letting go of good material, a good to get give a joke a good area. You need a big audience or a proper audience. And then when it's a good audience, oh, maybe I shouldn't do the new joke. Maybe I should do the joke I know is going to work. And is that constant? I find for me constant sort of mental battle of. You've got to try new stuff, but you've got to yeah. do a good job. And it's, it, yeah. it, is, it is a balancing act. But I think this lockdown period has been a good chance to um, just get, get rid of, swipe the state clean and maybe come back sort of, you know, bigger, better and stronger. That's the idea. Sure. Anyway. So have you found lockdown uh, liberating in that sense for right then? It's really great for work. You know, yeah. like it's taking away the pressure of time, the feeling that everybody else is running forward and that you're standing still, which happens a lot in writing, as you know. And the feeling that that doesn't matter anymore has been fantastic. Um, so a great uh, lifting of false consciousness, the idea that if you're not getting up in the morning and doing 2,000 words and then going for a run, that you're wasting your time. I've just let it all go, you know, stuff, all that. Um, so it's been good for that very much. But I think we're going to see, I hope we're going to see a huge flowering of the arts after this period because yeah. we all had time to just maybe do nothing. You know, maybe that's what we needed. The onward rush, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it? This idea of essential and non-essential. And it turns out that most of our lives were totally non-essential. So yeah. I, I hope we live slightly differently, you know, spend more time with people I mind about and less time with people I don't and do the things that, that matter and, and do them now um, or, or, you know, when it's safe to do so. Yeah, definitely. Steph? Excellent. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. You've got a great voice. I can listen to you all day. Uh, the, the question <laughs> uh, is now, uh, what's next? What's, ne what, what's the next journey? What's the next adventure? What's the next book, Horatio? Um, so, so that's another thing I've learned the hard way is that you can't force it. You just have to wait for them to find you sometimes. Um, mm. so I've got a book coming out in March, which I'm just editing now, uh, which is about the breakdown. And then I've got to finish off uh, my third children's book, uh, Aubrey and the Terrible Spiders, uh, needs to be done uh, for Firefly. Um, and then, um, I don't know, my father died last year, and um, I'd like to write about him. He makes a very good subject for a story. He was thrown out of South Africa uh, in 1963 for being part of a group or associated with a group that um, blew up pylons and attempted to confront the apartheid regime uh, yeah. through non-lethal violence um and then he comes to britain and uh, he you know he didn't have an easy life dad he went through he's a classic you know why you should go to therapy he had four marriages um and he kind of read himself into uh in, into fullness by the time he'd finished work and left journalism he retired on the stroke of 65 he, um he, he was approaching you know he was like a, he was a, he became a wonderful man and it was always there and i think by hard thinking and listening and reading he did what you know maybe a good therapist might achieve in a couple of years um but he, he was marvelous obviously i loved him and i want to write about him and about my son um uh, because it's very interesting seeing the lines that connect them um you know despite the fact that they only met a few times so maybe something like that i'd like to write a book of book of joy actually is what i'd like to do <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great Sounds great.
And of all days to do it as well. On on Father's Day, we've got this podcast as well. So it must mean something there. So I, 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 have oh. they treated you to a Father's Day card and possibly a pair of garish socks? <laughs> have they, bugger? Um, they informed me <laughs> that they had ordered me a shirt online that my son Aubrey chose very carefully to match one of his. And I was like, tell me it's not a SWAT top. Um and then, since then, they've completely, it hasn't arrived, and they've entirely forgotten that it's Father's Day, so nobody's even said it yet. So, I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's the job. <laughs> the, say it louder, say it loud and hear you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The plate of the neglected lockdown dad. That's it, that's it. That sounds like a children's book as well, I know. <laughs> so, uh, if anyone wants to sort of that's get a, in touch or keep up with what you're doing, Horatio? Where can people sort of find you in that sense? Um, well, I'm still turning it out on um, so uh, Radio 4 every now and then. I, I work for, for my own correspondent. Um, I do bits and pieces for the papers, uh, mostly the FT, but then we've been on basically on, on pause for travel for a while. Um, so the next thing will be March the 4th, I guess, when the uh, next book comes out. And hopefully by then it will all be able to you know, go back and get out and, and do what we want to do. Because, um, I, 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 you know, a large part of my life has been talking to people, to readers uh, and, yeah. and curious audiences in tents and all that's been gone. And um, I've actually missed it. I've, I've, I've really missed meeting people. Um, so that would be good, wouldn't it? Well, you, like, you must do, do, doing this, Yeah, do, doing, doing this is nice, you know. Yeah. And it, it, it's been a pleasure having you on, but it, it, wouldn't, compare to, it wouldn't compare to getting together in person and doing it, you know what I mean? It's, it it does miss that little extra something, I think, and I am looking forward to that myself. That bit of human interaction and, and eye contact and all the things we sort of yeah. take for granted. You know, yeah, yeah. Sure it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Um, good luck with the new book. Good luck Thank with you, uh, managing a seven-year-old and perhaps avoiding him ending up as a police officer in time and uh, everything else you got on the fires. Thank you so much for having me, and good luck with all of your work. I can't wait to come and see you guys in action when when that's oh. possible. Yes, we as soon as we're allowed to leave the house again, we hook something up. I'm sure. Thank you wait, wait, you've got plenty of time. You've got plenty of time. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Take care and, and see you before you long. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you, Horatio. Thank you. Cheers. And that was the Tales from Wales podcast. Thank you very much to our guest, Horatio Clare. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed recording it with him. Thank you very much, as always, for listening. Uh, feel free to give us a like, give us a share, recommend us to your friends, and maybe even leave us a nice review. I uh, hope you're all keeping safe during lockdown. We've got some fantastic guests coming up in coming weeks over the next couple of months as well. Um, perhaps we can see each other at a comedy gig sometime in the not so near future. Until then, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Really?